Welcome back to Who's Talking. He's explained why Hush Puppy shoes made a comeback in the 90s, why ice cream sells better in round containers, and why the Beatles hit it so big. He's made a career out of his clever and often profound insights into our everyday lives. And in the process, he's become a save for our time. You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception. That's reality. Life is feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome. It is so good to talk with you again. Thank you. Glad to be here. So there is an adjective that has gained currency in recent years where people say something is Gladwellian. What <laughs> do you think people mean when they say that? Well, first of all, I think it was probably dreamt up by the publicity department of my publishing publisher's house. Um, I don't know what that means. I mean, it's enormously flattering, I suppose, to have an adjective named after you. Um, I don't know if there's anything terribly distinctive about what I do that deserves its own oh, please. adjective like that. Yeah, I, no, 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 because, I, I, all right, I'll, I'll start to describe okay. it, but right. I want you to run with it, because yeah. I think what people mean is that, that, that you create a story, a narrative, that is meshed with behavioral research, analysis, to help explain why people behave the way they do, why the world works they do. I mean, would you say that? Yes. I mean, I remember years ago when I, I spent a good 10 years working for The New Yorker. And when I got to The New Yorker, that was the kind of story that I wanted to tell. I, I was enamored of social science and uh, economics and all those kinds of disciplines and frustrated at how much difficulty they were having in telling their, sharing their insights with the rest of the world. And so I thought, oh, I can... I'm a trained journalist. I can occupy this middle ground between this fountain of ideas over here and the public over here. And so I guess Gladwellian describes someone who wants to walk that down the middle between the public and and, uh, the world of ideas and science. A good example of that is what you're doing right now. You have a podcast called Revisionist History. And as the title would indicate, you kind of want to take a look back and did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? And in season seven, you focus on experiments, uh, mm-hmm. real or imagined, uh, that would test what we got right or wrong. And take a look at what you had to say about that. The great sobering discovery of my middle age is that the list of things we don't know is a lot longer than the list of things we do know. So give me an example of one of the experiments you talk about in revisionist history. And as you examine, did we get it right originally or did we get it wrong? So we do, for example, we do three episodes on something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, which is one of the great untold stories of the Second World War. In 1943, uh, a nutritionist, a famous nutritionist at the University of Minnesota, realizes that we don't know enough about what happens to people when they are uh, uh, when they go without food for long? When they're profoundly malnourished? How to nurse them back to health? How uh, uh, you know what happens to you when you're deprived of food for long periods of time? So he gathers thirty. He gets thirty-six conscientious objectors, brings them to his lab at the University of Minnesota, and over the next year, while he watches them every day and tests them every day, starves them, and they go. They drop 
50, 60 pounds. They're skeletons. And basically, he chronicles this, the extraordinary physiological and psychological effects of malnutrition on people and produces a kind of document that has been used ever since. I mean, it's, it's used in our, it helps in our understanding of, of, of how to deal with anorexia, for example. It all comes from this extraordinary, and so I do a whole series, three episodes on this experiment, asking a number of questions, but among them, could we do that experiment today? And the answer is, of course, we couldn't. In other words, would people allow it? Would the would, government yes. allow it? Would we be, and we would not be allowed to do that experiment today. And I, I, that, my whole series is about asking the question, why? And uh, what's your answer is, to, well, two things. One, why? I guess it's not so much why wouldn't we allow it today. Why did they allow it back then? No. And are they, were they smarter then or were they, are they smarter now? No, I think they're smarter then. So I became, in the course of doing that examination of that experiment, uh, powerfully convinced by the volunteers themselves that we ought to let uh, people volunteer for medical experiments, even if they suffer in so doing, if they believe themselves to be serving the larger good. And, I, I, and, I, and then I talked to all these medical ethicists today who said, we should never do an experiment like that today. And I don't understand that. I honestly don't, Chris. I think we've become, I don't know what happened. We've become so terrified of asking anyone to do something outside of themselves. And I find that, just so, in some ways, depressing. Well, I mean, let me push back on that a little bit. I mean, isn't it a cruel to starve people? It is, but the question is, is it cruel to ask someone to starve themselves in the name of the, of the greater good if you tell them what they're getting into and if they freely join? So, you know, it's not like we were taking, they took prisoners who had no other options and said, we're going to starve you for a year. And But let me ask you, yeah. The flip side of this is because you also have in your series what you call magic wand experiments, yeah. which are not real experiments. It's what, what if we could do this? Yeah. And one of the ones that you posit has to do with the issue of the reluctance of, of people to get the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. And you also share with that the yeah. fact that a quarter of Americans, which is an astonishing number, are afraid of needles. Take a look yeah. at how you set this up. I say it's the anti-COVID supplement that I'm sticking in your salt. So we've now we're not caught, we're not using the word vaccine at all because vaccine for most people is associated with the thing that you get in a needle, right? My question is: Does moving the COVID vaccine from the vaccine category to the nutritional supplement category help us with the skeptic? So. What's your conclusion? In other words, if, if you didn't get COVID in a shot in your arm, but instead it yeah. was, as you say, nutritional and it's just suffused somehow yeah. in, in, the salt, in your salt, would, would people now say, I'm not doing salt because I don't want the COVID vaccine? Yeah. So I wondered, what would happen to vaccine skepticism if we put the vaccine in salt? So I, the analogy I used was to iodine. The, the reason there's iodine in your salt is that we need iodine to prevent goiter, which were these huge growths that were very common um, in up until the beginning of the 20th century. And we all, everyone put iodine in the salt. It goes away. And no one thinks twice about that today. So I sort of tongue-in-cheek wondered if we were to put the vaccine in salt and just say, it's a nutritional supplement that'll help you fight this terrible disease. But you know it's COVID vaccine. Well, you, we don't, you, we're not going to use the word vaccine, Chris, you, because... 
The vaccine sets off, that word sets off all kinds right. of people's. So my experiment is, to what extent is vaccine skepticism, in other words, both a marketing problem and a delivery problem? So we think of it as an ideological problem, but I'm saying, if we call it a supplement, we stuck it in your salt, maybe people wouldn't care so much, right? You, you agree? I mean, do you think that's true? Uh, I would love to do the experiment. I think it would make a difference with some, I think, you know, as I said in that clip, some significant portion of Americans are terrified of needles. So there's a portion of the people who are vaccine skeptics or hesitant who are simply that way because they don't like getting a needle. So they let don't me want ask you a question, yeah. which is, I, I, I laugh at this because I've been getting vaccines and boosts and all of that. When somebody gives you a shot in your yeah. arm, can you look at it or do you have to look away? I look at it. I'm not, it doesn't, I'm, but I'm, I'm at the opposite end of... I, I, of I, the, I don't, I'm not scared of needles, but I ain't looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look back at your really remarkable work over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, the tipping point, how ideas or products reach critical mass and spread like viruses. Blink, how first impressions are generally reliable. Outliers, which su suggest the key to success is less about talent and more about practice. You talk about 10,000 hours of practice. Why do you think it is that people are so intrigued by your work, by these popularizations of these concepts? Most, most of us are uh, experience-rich and theory-poor. So we have lots and lots of things happen in our lives, but we don't have good ways of making sense of them. And one of the things my books do are give people um, ways of making sense of their own experience. So they can, they can sit, take a step back and they can say, oh, that, you know, oh, that sort of ties it all together. Oh, that explains why this happened or this happened. So that's a kind of role that I saw. I saw a need for that role in the kind of reading public. Um, I also think it helps to be someone who's not ideologically aligned. I'm someone who's, I'm not an American. I'm a Canadian. I've sort of, particularly recently, I feel like there is a real hunger for um, someone who isn't immersed in the kind of destructive political games that go on in this country. Well, that doesn't mean you don't <laughs> arouse some opposition, because to quote an axiom that you didn't mm -hmm. come up with, uh, nothing fails like success. And there is something of a cottage industry these yeah. days to kind of knock you down a peg or two. In yeah. the Atlantic, uh, the Gladwell formula is at last exhausted. In the New Republic, a perfect anecdote proves a fatuous rule. How do you how do you respond? I love that. It's great. I mean, look, the if you don't have critics or don't have people who are like looking at you and dragging you down, it means you're not doing anything that's attracting anyone's attention. So um, I always read those with a great deal of uh, with a little sort of twinkle in my eye, because also I remember when I was a young journalist starting out, I used to write those reviews about people like me. So it's like it's I, I'm just getting I'm getting a dose of what I dished out when I was a upstart 25-year-old so journalist. Really? No offense? No, I mean, I don't, I'm not, not thin-skinned. I, like, I have other things to worry about. I, I don't, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. You once said, I'd rather be interesting than correct. So when you talk about tipping points or 10,000 hours, mm. how seriously should we take you? I think that what 
those ideas are useful for is, um, like I say, a way of organizing experience. So the point of the 10,000-hour discussion in Outliers was not, as some people claimed, that I was saying there is a hard and fast number of hours you need to put in to be good at anything. I was trying to introduce to people the notion that um, true expertise in complicated domains takes a long time, a lot longer than you think. And once you realize that, you realize you can't do it by yourself. So one of the big themes of Outliers was that success is a group activity. And the 10,000-hour rule is central to that. If you understand that, oh, you can't become uh, an international grandmaster in two years. You have, to, you have to be playing chess for 10 years or more to get to that level. It is almost never happens that people reach that level without... When you understand that, oh, so you got to start playing chess at 10 if you want to be an international grandmaster in your 20s. What does that mean? Well, it means your mom or your dad's got to drive you to one tournament after another. It means you've got to have, you know, you can't have an after-school job. So you got to have money in the family so that you can spend your evenings playing chess. I could go on and on and on and on. And when you realize that, you, you begin to understand the structure of success. Why success only happens to certain people in certain places. Why it's hard to get that, that top level if you come from an impoverished background. That was what I was trying to get people to think about. It's a metaphor for understanding how this process works. But you also talk about wanting to engage in some intellectual mischief sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, to what degree are you mm. messing with us? <laughs> <laughs> well, so in the podcast, the great thing about podcasts is that they are there, the, the genre is lighthearted. I mean, it's, it's. I, frankly, I kind of hope that this is a, a visual podcast. I mean, <laughs> yes. That's what I'm trying to achieve is that intimacy that people yes. will say that I, I was yeah. in the room with these two yeah. guys. I've always believed that ideas ought to be as much a kind of occasion for play as any other. You should have as much fun dealing with ideas as you do if you're reading a thriller or watching a, you know, a science fiction movie or. They are, they are fun, and it's in, it's fun to me to kind of to play with ideas to see how far you can push them to. And we've done a good chunk of revisionist history episodes are they're done with you know tongue planted firmly in cheek. I mean we we did a whole thing about you know why did Elvis one of my favorite episodes there was a song Elvis used to sing over and over again one of his staple songs and he would always botch the lyrics of the bridge. And the question is, why? Why can't Elvis sing this song properly? So called up like psychoanalysts. And, you know, it, in the end, it's super interesting because we're discussing what are the sort of psychological factors that might cause an artist to... But it is a goof. I mean, it's like we're pretending that... Well, now you've got me intrigued, though. Why did he mess it up? Well, did you come to a conclusion? Well, we had the Freudians weigh in. We talked about... Because <laughs> it's a version of a Freudian slip, okay. right? The Freudian slip is the... The mistake that has meaning, that right. has, you know, and Elvis had a problem. Elvis, who had the most craziest, most tangled, most nutso personal life, right? I mean, Elvis, he's a mess. And he's talking about uh, breaking off a relationship with someone that he deeply loves. And this is, you know, Elvis is the guy who, uh, you know, the death of his mother was far and away the most traumatic event of his life. He had that crazy relationship with Priscilla. I mean, the man has got all kinds of... So he's, he's singing a song about the very thing that gets to his core as a human being. And of course he botches it. 
and gets it wrong and like can't, you see, would start laughing in the middle of the song sometimes. You can find tapes was, online. We were really close to the core It was core just here. too close. It was too close to, to, to home. All right, I want to make a, an abrupt change. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your hair. All right. Because earlier in your career, yeah. you looked like that. But mm -hmm. at some point, you grow it out to yeah. what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, has it been good for your brand that you look like the eccentric, brainy professor? Well, uh, I don't know. It makes me more so recognizable. So I, I just cut my hair last week. So, I was actually a little disappointed that yeah, it came you know, in. I, was, I wanted it to be a little bit I bigger. had the full-on fro. <laughs> and I have noticed that when the fro is full-on, it's just easier for people to recognize me on the street. So there's a lot more of the, hey, you, May Malcolm. That happens do you like that? Well. Yeah, I mean, my, the people who recognize me on the street are people who tend to like, you're, you know, the haters never. Right. Right. It's your fans. So it's like, it's really fun. You know, so you want to photograph or like right. some. When I said, when you, do, uh, do you like that? I expected you to say, it doesn't my suck. My favorite, <laughs> the favorite time ever of this is I was going for a run on, in Santa Monica along the beach. And there's a guy in a tricked out BMW with like, you know, and, a, and he, he's this incredibly handsome, buffed out guy. And he sees me and he stands up straight outside of the sunroof in his car puts his fist in, in the air and says, I love you, bro. <laughs> That's, that was his You know how style. many social scientists get that, right? <laughs> I must say that before I prepared for this interview, I never knew that you were the offspring of an interracial marriage. Your yes. father was a white mathematician from England, and your mom was a psychotherapist from Jamaica. Mm. Which raised the question to me, which I never thought I'd ask you, but what are your feelings about race and identity when it comes to you? Well, I've written a lot in my books about race, partly for that reason. It's an interest, it's a subject of personal interest to me. Um, and uh, I, you know, it's funny, my, neither of my parents, the reason they were able to get married in 1958 was that neither of them took their identity that seriously. My father, if you prodded him, wouldn't have said he was. If you asked him to describe the top five words that describe you, he, white would not have been in the top five. And if, I'm, if you asked my mother the same question in those years, she would have said, well, I'm a Christian. I'm, uh, you know, I'm interested in psychology. I'm, uh, you know, she would have come up with all, uh, but the fact that she was black would have been low on the list. So I come from a family that exists because we didn't foreground those issues. So it's always a tricky question for me. I sort of feel the same way. I don't spend a lot of time um, thinking about what my own identity is because it's so, it's, it's such a mess. It's like Canada and England and Jamaica. I was at the World Track and Field Championships and I don't even know who to cheer for. You say as a child, you kept to yourself and your toys, but you describe yourself as an adult, as a hermit, and you've said you have this odd antipathy to doorbells. Yes. So the, my question is, why uh, is someone so private uh -huh. 
in such a public role and, 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 and enjoying it when people would trick out BMWs or whatever it was. I love on you, the bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a difference. So an extrovert is someone who, is, who seeks out that kind of engagement and derives you know, great uh, energy from it. I don't, uh, I don't seek it out. I'm happy when it happens, but I don't deliberately go to places where I'm recognized. You know, I don't, um, I, ha- I don't take extraordinary steps to make sure that everyone knows who I am. Um, and I reserve enough kind of private time in my life that I can recharge my batteries. I'm not hostile to social interaction. I'm just mindful of its consequences. So uh, speaking of privacy, uh, in preparing for this interview, my producer came across uh, an episode of the show Car Show, uh-huh. right, yeah. that you were on, yeah. in which you talked about the fact that you were new, a new father yeah. and that you need to get a car uh-huh. for a family of three. Yeah. But what was interesting to him, and I must say after he told it yeah. to me, was the fact that nowhere in the internet is there any mention of you having any family at all. Yeah, so tell you about the limitations of the internet. So <laughs> I guess my, well, adore all the research. So I guess my question is, did you, do you in fact need the family car? I do need the family car. Uh, we're making do uh, as, as uh, time being. But uh, yes, I have an 11 month old daughter who is the light of my life. And, uh, and a partner. And a partner, yes. I, so yes, I have. I a am, married partner, or I, a, uh, a soon-to-be-married partner, yes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So all, all good things. So is the wedding going to be on TV? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> Just when I thought I had you figured out, uh, I also found out that, and maybe a lot of people know this, I didn't, that you are, were, and are a very good runner that you won 1,500-meter championships as a kid. And take a look at this. But he's starting to look a little bit too much at his feet as Malcolm is pulling away. Gladwell has opened up a gap on Chavez. Last year, you ran a mile race and at age 57 beat competitors half your age. Yes. So how proud are you of this? That, you, this is maybe the, the, the achievement that I'm proudest of in my entire life. I um, yes, I take running very seriously. I was a, I was a good, very good uh, high school runner, and then I, I kind of le- stopped racing for thirty years, and then I returned to the fray, and I've been enjoying myself tremendously. And um, it's an alternate world. It's a world where none of the things that I've been doing for the last thirty years matter, and so it's incredibly freeing. So. Runners don't relate to me as Malcolm Gladwell, the writer or podcaster. They relate to me as Malcolm Gladwell, the runner. You know, which is, I mean, the idea of having and a kind you know, of- they can beat you or you can beat them. Yeah, yeah, that's And it's all. as simple as that. And they care about how many miles I ran last week or how good a workout I had. And that is, uh, I, I, have, I, have, uh, I have been um, alerted to the sort of joys of having another dimension in your life. Like so that. I want to end on one more Gladwellian debate mm-hmm. because I read that, and this- honestly seems I, I've related to this debate because we're older people, I'm considerably older than you, the, the relative merits of peak performance uh, versus longevity. Yes. And that you had were the relative merits in this particular case are the Rolling Stones and Paul Simon. Yeah. So, so make I, the case for us old guys. I did a, uh, this audiobook with Paul Simon where we interviewed him for 50 hours and produced something called Miracle and Wonder. So in the, I got to know him very well. And 
I became convinced that he is of infinitely greater value in the history of music than the Rolling Stones, for example. Because you realize there are people out there having heart attacks. Right I know, now. fine. Yes. Just call 911. <laughs> uh, Paul Simon was relevant in the, he had his first hit in the 50, 1950s. He is at the center of the musical conversation in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and some would argue their favorite Paul Simon album is an album he does in the aughts. So this man is relevant for basically the last 50 or 60 years he's been in the conversation in music. The Rolling Stones are relevant for a tiny window in the late 60s and early 70s. And I have become convinced that- And we, they were pretty damn big in the- Absolutely, but this is an argument. So we have two models here. Pete, how high is your greatest peak? And how long is your, is your uh, span of very good performances, right? And I think that as a society, we overvalue the peak and undervalue people who have a high level of activity over a long period of time. Paul Simon would be the quintessential example of the latter. And he has, I believe, wrongly been denied his place as the greatest American musician of, of, of our generation, certainly. I wanted to see how you'd finish that sentence. You, so you, uh, let me just simply say that all of you people out there who love Mick Jagger and the Stones, Malcolm <laughs> dot Gladwell. 911, <laughs> Malcolm, thank you. This has been a delight. Yeah, thank you so much. Always fascinating. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell's brand of unconventional thinking has attracted millions of readers. He's been described as creating a new literary category, modern pop ideas. But that may undersell what he's done these past two decades, get us to think about subjects all around us in brand new ways. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.